Welcome to the Cycling in Alignment podcast, an examination of cycling as a practice and dialogue about the integration of sport and right relationship to your life. Welcome, Cycling in Alignment listeners, Cycle Knots. You are back for uh, the first episode of season three of Cycling in Alignment. That's the first episode of 2022. And I'm grateful for my audience, as always. You've returned to hear my philosophies, my thoughts, my prognostications, my prevarications. So here we go. I'm going to start things off with a new format, a new podcast format for 2022. And what I'd like is your feedback on how this works, what you think of it. What I'm doing is capitalizing on someone else's hard labor. In this case, I'm going to make commentary on an existing podcast produced by another podcaster, and I'm going to expand the discussion. Hence, this series will be called Discussion Expansion. I called it that, or I'm titling it that very specifically because for me, it's not about arguing with someone or making the point that I'm right and they're wrong. That's not my objective at all. I'm not here to talk about all the crap I know and all the other crap that other people don't know. What I'm here to do is simply present my point of view and some of the ideas that crossed my mind as I heard this podcast. So without further ado, let's dive into it. The pod that I'll be expanding on today is the Real Science of Sport podcast with sports scientist Professor Ross Tucker and editor Mike Finch. You can find this pod on all the normal platforms. I listen to it on Spotify. The date of this podcast is August 20, August 2020. That's all it says, at least on Spotify. There's no episode number, but the episode is titled The Simple Truth About Exercise and Hydration. And again, the title of the podcast is called The Real Science of Sport Podcast. So I make my rounds in different pods and I have my favorites. And this one I've only started listening to relatively recently. And I quite enjoy it. I think Ross has, I'll call him Ross as though he's my friend, even though we've never met. Uh, Ross and Mike have a good rapport going. They talk about things in a manner that balances science and geekiness with down to earthedness and uh, layman's terms. And Ross does a good job of breaking those down. Mike's a journalist and they've known each other for a long time, apparently. And so Ross plays the science geek and Mike kind of plays the, the layman who asks questions to make sure that people can understand all the science speak that, that Ross is disseminating. And I think it's an effective format. I thought this episode was particularly interesting because Ross has a lot of expertise in this area. In fact, apparently Ross and Mike first met discussing this issue of hydration in sport. And really this episode is about Ross making a point that in order for someone to actually die from dehydration, they would have to walk in the desert for months. But that's not the message that we've been delivered from commercial entities and sports science. We've been given sort of the opposite agenda, which is that if you don't drink a crap ton of fluids during your race, your marathon or your bike race or whatever you're doing, that you're going to harm your athletic performance or die. And the argument that Ross puts forth, the statement really is that this isn't actually accurate. There's quite a bit of science to show this isn't really the case. There's also evidence given to us by nature and the evolution of humans that contradicts these claims. And Ross studied under Professor Tim Noakes. Uh, these are both South African gentlemen. I believe they're both from Cape Town. And Tim Noakes went to great lengths to illustrate or 
disseminate the information that this belief that hydration, hydration, hydration is so important in sports wasn't really uh, the best message to send. And he also went to great lengths to illustrate or prove apparently that there were a lot of commercial interests at the heart of this message. Conflicts of interest because sports drink companies, of course, have a lot of money to make if they tell you that your performance is going to be harmed if you don't drink enough. You can't sell not drinking, but you can sell drinking our product, our electrolyte-filled performance-enhancing beverages. So Tim apparently loves a good fight, according to what Ross was saying. And in this case, he kind of went to town with these guys in various different forms. That's sort of the picture that was painted. And I'm not familiar with the precise discussions or the events that happened but this is around, this is like in the mid 80s, late 90s, I think, according to the timeline that Ross detailed. So, you know, it's quite interesting to hear the history behind this. But prior to the 60s, according to the pod, no one really had a fear of dehydration in sports. That wasn't a thing, it wasn't a cultural belief like it is now. And so runners used to run events, marathons, or famously there's some 90 kilometer race that, that Ross refers to that's uh, 56 miles for those of you who are still using irrelevant units and the athletes would finish and purportedly only had one or two sips of water, right? So 90 K running race, that's quite a big duration at maximal effort. And no one would advise that now. And, and I think most sports scientists or perhaps anyone that we could think of that's credible would agree that that's not the point of this discussion either is to encourage you not to drink. But Professor Tucker belabored the point that we have been conditioned or arguably, I'll use the word brainwashed, to believe that if we don't drink, drink, drink all the time, our performance will be compromised. And he's simply saying that's not the case. So somewhere around 1967, uh, the Florida Gators purportedly won the Orange Bowl, and that was a big victory. And that was a result of their coach doing some sports science. And he was convinced that his players were really suffering in the heat and humidity in Florida in the summer. And so what he did is he found someone to make him a sports drink with a bunch of electrolytes in it and supposedly it tasted horrible at first. And then they added a crap ton of sugar to it probably. And then that made it palatable lo and behold. And then they won the orange bowl. And according to how Ross tells the story, they had some of the best advertising that money can't buy, which is in the post game interviews, the opposing coach said, Oh, it was the Gatorade. Uh, or, oh, it was the sports drink. It wasn't called Gatorade at that point. It wasn't until later it became Gatorade, hence aiding the Florida Gators in their victory. So that was sort of the, the birth of the sports drink industry. And now we've got all these amazing sports performance enhancing beverages. So fast forward to one of the more famous studies that was done on distance runners some years later. And they was in hot conditions on a treadmill and they were allowed to freely drink water whenever they wanted. And I haven't actually read the study. I will confess. Uh, I don't think that's, I found it in the show notes or anything. This is one of the challenges of being, um, not in the academic field. I don't always have access to this stuff and paying 25 or $30 to read a study. And every time you want to read it is, uh, well, it's not quite practical for me at all times. In any case, apparently the results were that the runners, when they were free to drink, they drank about 50% of their loss, their weight loss in fluids. Now there's some nuance to that point. So we'll definitely get to that. But the, but the takeaway from the study is that the runners drank approximately 50% of their lost weight in fluids. Of course, they drank it in fluids because you would drink fluids normally. Sorry, I explained that rather clunkily, but you get the idea. So they didn't drink 100% of the weight lost. They didn't replace all of their fluids lost is the implication of the study. So that's interesting. 
And Professor Tucker's major point, his conclusion of this entire pod is really that if you drink to thirst, you will be okay. That's enough. We don't need to follow a formula. We don't need to force ourselves to drink. And we, we don't want to do that for various reasons. And he, he talks about some science that support this and also some evolutionary arguments. And I'll briefly unpack both those. And then you can go listen to the pod yourself if you want to. I'm not going to go through every detail of it. That's not my objective here. I'm not trying to pirate all the info, nor am I trying to give you an exhaustive synopsis. The point is to give you the bullets so that then I can discuss my own expansions of those ideas. So the concept, the commercial concept is that if you don't drink enough, your performance will be harmed or eventually you might die. And the consequences of that commercial message have been people almost dying or actually dying in marathons as they've been instructed to drink more and more fluids. And there are two main points to unpack in this part of the discussion. One is that as you consume more fluids because of the difference in osmolality of the blood and the fluids you're drinking, you by natural law or definition, you actually deplete or lower the concentration of electrolytes in your blood. And that's problematic. So the reason for that is that blood is extremely salty. It's extremely high in electrolytes and no one drinks an electrolyte drink that matches that osmolality. So the concept is pretty simple. Even if you're drinking a sports drink with a ton of electrolytes, the percentage difference is significant. So you're still diluting the amount of electrolytes you have in your system as a net. That's, as far as I understand it, that's really fundamentally one of the biggest problems. So even if you're drinking a super salty solution, you're not going to accomplish the goal of replacing fluids at the same osmolality or electrolyte balance <clears throat> as your blood. And it's when the blood osmolality goes too low, that's when you have serious problems. So The reason for that is we could make a solution that was salty enough, but the problem is you couldn't stomach it. It wouldn't make it through your, your intestines. Uh, you probably just throw it up or have to stop running or stop riding hard. It, it just wouldn't work. The stomach can't handle that or the digestive tract can't handle that. You get all, you have all kinds of problems. So that's why that doesn't work. So we have to understand how human bodies work and how the problem of hydration is a difficult one to, to solve during exercise. And we have to fundamentally understand there's natural law at place. There are systems of regulations in the body that will navigate or will moderate all of these levels. We just have to give it the raw materials and let the body do its thing. But if we over engineer things in an effort to try to enhance performance or to try to avoid reduced performance, that's where we run into problems. And I'll unpack the nature of that philosophy a bit in my expansion. So the other part that, that Professor Tucker talks about is sort of the, the evolutionary argument of this. And this is quite interesting. It's really about the idea that humans are fundamentally persistence hunters. And this was our evolutionary survival mechanism. We don't have teeth. We don't have claws. We don't run as fast as a cheetah. In fact, if you look at our running speed uh, per relative to our body mass, we're one of the crappiest runners in all of the animal kingdom. We're terrible at running in terms of sprinting speed, that is. But in terms of endurance, we're quite good. And so persistence hunting is the concept that we slowly advance on a herd of antelope or buffalo or whatever other animal that can outrun us, but we just keep going after them. And eventually they overheat and we don't. Why? Because they have hair and they can't sweat. 
we can sweat and we have far less body hair. So we're far better at radiating body heat than they are. And all animals, well, all vertebrates I'll say are, we're really pretty inefficient on the whole at converting our chemical energy into our metabolic energy, into mechanical energy, that is into movement. Meaning it's about most cyclists are around 21 to 25% efficient, which means that of a given pile of calories that are burned, let's say a thousand calories, 21 to 25% of those will go into actually making the pedals turn. And the remainder, most of those are lost in heat. So we're, we're, we're like radiators. I mean, this is why the matrix is a movie, right? Because we generate lots of heat. And that's what the machines in the world uses to power their, their things. So we're, we're terrible in terms of efficiency. Like we're, we're about, you know, 70, 75% of our energy gets lost in heat. Only a quarter of it or less goes to actually pushing the bike forward. So that, but that makes us good persistent hunters because we can just kind of go at a low level, but we can go and go and go and go that is walk or jog for long periods of time, chasing an animal that will sprint ahead of us and then get tired and wait. And then we catch up to it and then it sprints ahead of us and then it gets tired and it's forced to rest and we catch up to it. And if you do that long enough, eventually the thing just rolls over and puts its hooves in the air and says, fine, kill me. I can't move anymore. I mean, this, this happens. You can see animals do this. Uh, actually, Ross talks about a study where a cheetah runs to heat a, a point of heat exhaustion and they just literally lay upside down and put all four paws in the air because that's the best way for them to radiate heat is to expose their stomachs. So probably because there's less hair in their stomachs, I think. And so when they don't sweat and they've got this fur coat on, you really can overheat animals very quickly. This is why you can't take a Labrador or a golden retriever on a hike on a hot day without a lot of water and a lot of shade, you'll kill the dog, you know, or possibly do brain damage to it. They just don't have the capacity to radiate heat like we do. So don't walk your dogs on hot days or do it cautiously, please. I mean, nobody wants to kill Labradors, right? So this part of the discussion is quite interesting because he points out fundamentally that, you know, humans are adapted to lose fluids over time without harm. And this is a key point to his discussion. And it's an important point to recognize that we can produce a lot of work and become quite dehydrated and not be harmed provided, I'll add, this is part of my expansion, provided that we do rehydrate at some point, you have to return to equilibrium. So that's also a key bullet that I would add to that idea that I think could have been emphasized a little more, but really in order to die from dehydration, there are far quicker ways to die, right? I mean, first stop breathing or cut off your air supply. Secondly, bleed out. You might die from low blood sugar if you pass out and break your skull open or fall off a cliff before you would die of dehydration. Like it's pretty hard to die of dehydration. You can do damage, but it takes, uh, in some cases, weeks for you to actually die. So we're pretty robust in that way. We're, we're kind of camel-like. And also Professor Tucker goes to great lengths to point out that um, one, of the, one of the quotes he uses, or I'm, I'm sort of paraphrasing here, I'm not going to quote him precisely, but he talks about how we don't have to teach Rover the dog or Mittens the kitten to drink. We don't have to tell them to drink. You don't have to take your dog and stuff his face into a water bowl. He, he or she knows when to drink. They have an instinct to drink. And here we are, this you know, apogee, keystone species, persistence hunter, you know, apex predator, human, all the amazing things that humans are, saying that slightly tongue-in-cheek, and yet we can't figure out how much to drink during a sporting event. So it makes you wonder, but I will expand on that point for sure. However, I think his, his message that we don't need to instruct animals how to drink is a good one. And I think that's important to keep in mind. There's a baseline instinct that an animal has to preserve life and to maintain their own hydration levels. So that's a good thing. 
another expansion on that point, or well, actually another point that Ross makes is that if it's not necessary to tell yourself to breathe, then it's not necessary to tell yourself to eat or drink, or well, in this case, he's talking about drinking. And I'll also expand on that. So this is fundamentally what what the pod is about. And again, just to emphasize one point, I want to be clear, you know, Professor Ross Tucker, he's a professor, he's studied academia, he's done science, presumably for most of his adult life. That's not me. I'm not here to challenge his authority. I'm not here to say that I'm smarter than he is. Uh, I'm not here to say I'm better educated than he is because I'm definitely not, not in the academic world. I have my own little hack together education of things I've studied, people I've observed, uh, people I've learned from, and my own storied bike racing career, uh, fighting in the gutter and doing points races and learning all my own hard lessons through drinking too much or not drinking enough. And I've done all those things. I've also watched athletes do those things. So that's my area of expertise. I'm here to expand the discussion just to be crystal clear. And this applies to all of these podcasts, assuming I do more and they're well-received. I'm not here to tell anyone all the things they don't know or say I'm right and they're wrong. It's a, a way for us to develop the discussion and hear different dimensions. That's what I'm hoping to offer. So it is with humble respect that I, well, I guess used Tim, uh, use Professor Tucker's material and have this pod. I hope he's okay with that. I'm sure he'll let me know if he's not. Maybe we can have a pod together someday. That'd be cool. So, okay, points I have to make. Points of expansion. One, I think that his recommendation that if we drink to thirst, we'll be okay is a good baseline recommendation. The expansion on that point is that when we were persistent hunting, we were under certain types of conditions. That is to say, as far as I understand it, I could be wrong about this. Maybe there are other experts who can weigh in on this. But as I described, persistence hunting is basically a situation where you approach a herd of antelope you run towards them, you get them to sprint, you keep tracking them until you find where they ran off to, then you keep following them and you persistently pursue them until they're exhausted. And then you can get close enough to hit them with a rock or kill them with a spear or whatever, or drive the mastodon into a pit that you dug or off a cliff, and then you get to eat it. Uh, and that method is how we solved the equation for life. That's how we outsmarted the sprintedness and the fangs and the teeth and the bigger size of the mastodon. That's how we equalized that part of the equation. But that entire act of chasing an animal at a moderate or slow speed was of a certain stimulus. And that stimulus was if we think about the balance between parasympathetic and sympathetic drive, there were sympathetic moments in that hunt for sure. Okay. Imagine the final moment when maybe you've been chasing a herd of antelope for eight hours. And I'm kind of, again, I'm to be clear, I'm making up the, the sort of scenario here. I don't know that it took eight hours. I don't know that it took three days or maybe it took one hour. I'm not really sure. Probably dependent on the people, the condition, the animals, the terrain, the heat, the time in history we're talking about. Okay. So we're, I'm sort of making up what I imagine to be a bell curve example for the point of illustration. I'm not a anthropologist or a paleontologist or an antelopologist, but imagine this is the case. A tribe stalks a herd of gazelles for eight hours. Most of that is, yeah, it's intensive, but it's basically an eight hour ha uh, excuse me, an eight hour walk with some jogging and some tracking not exactly super stressful, not my point being not highly sympathetic, like a marathon or a bike race. So when someone enters a race, assuming that they are competitive to the level where they're driven and they're really trying to maximize their placing or minimize their time, 
whether it's in a triathlon or a time trial or a gravel race or a marathon or a 5k, they're in a highly sympathetic state, probably for most of that event. That is to say, they're pretty much flat out. The, the throttle is all the way open. That's also assuming that they don't crash. They don't become really dehydrated. They don't bonk. They don't whatever, all those things aside, barring any of those complications, they're basically flat out. And I would argue that this condition doesn't really happen in persistence hunting. Not until the end when you're about to actually spear the antelope in the head or push the mastodon off the cliff or whatever. Maybe at that moment, there's some drama and there's some fear because you might get kicked in the face with a hoof or trampled or whatever. But in theory, if you did it right, the animal basically was laying on its back with its hooves in the air and you just stabbed it and that was it. And it wasn't a big deal. I'm pretty sure that's where most hunts ended up. So if that was the case, we can see that the central nervous system is already upregulated in modern, modern competitive scenarios. What I'm pointing out is no one did a 48 minute hill climb persistence hunt in persistence hunting universe in persistence hunting land. Those are different things. Modern sport puts demands on the nervous system that we did not encounter or were evolved to deal with. And it follows by extension, at least from my mindset, that our regular mechanisms of thirst and hunger would become further dysregulated by this highly sympathetic environment. I mean, think about it. High sympathetic drive dysregulates all mechanisms because what's happening is you're under threat. The nervous system perceives you as being under attack. When you're pushing as hard as you can for minutes and minutes and minutes and sometimes hours, you know, a good example is a hundred mile mountain bike race where you're basically time trialing for seven hours, 10 hours, right? It's a low level time trial, but you're pretty much on the gas the entire ride. That's a highly, that's a, a long duration sympathetic state. And that didn't exist in our history. In fact, unless you were chased by, like it, it never existed in animal world, because if you were chased by a lion, you were caught in 30 seconds. If you're chased by a cheetah, you were caught in three seconds. If you were hunted by a boar or attacked by an aggressive wild boar, you probably just got attacked. If you got attacked by a bear, you got attacked. Like the attack probably lasted 90 seconds. You either died or got away. That was it. The only instance I can imagine where a primitive man or tribal man and woman would have been under ongoing sympathetic stress would be if they were having a fight with a neighboring tribe. If they were attacked by a neighboring, uh, not a neighboring tribe, a, a competing tribe, or they attacked a competing tribe and fought for even that, you can imagine wouldn't last more than half an hour. So you see what I'm saying? Hopefully. I don't think these conditions existed anytime in our history, and therefore we can't expect our mechanisms of thirst or hunger to work the way they will when we're just hanging out during the day and we can drink to thirst, or even when we're exercising at a low or moderate level. Now, if you're going for a training ride and you drink to thirst, I think there the argument has a lot more weight. But during a race situation, it has less weight. And here's part of the nuance of becoming an experienced athlete. What happens is we begin to negotiate the balance between what we are, the actions we're performing, the mechanics, the biomechanics, the breathing, and all the regulatory processes that are associated with those activities. We begin to downregulate the importance of those as we become more experienced in sport. And that allows us to practice sport at a higher level. Example, if you've ever raced cyclocross, when you did your first cyclocross race, you were probably basically an uncoordinated ragdoll because you were going so hard. And then you had to get off your bike and land like a gazelle and leap over a barrier and carry your bike and then put it down gently without dropping the chain and then elegantly slide back onto the saddle and find your pedals and accelerate. And the first few times you tried to do that as an inexperienced cyclocrosser, you were you know, jumping off the bike and landing harshly and then the bike is bouncing and then you're tripping over the barrier or catching your toe or almost catching your toe and 
the bike's flying around in the air and the rear wheels bouncing on the ground as you're getting back on. And then you land on your crotch and it hurts when you jump on and you can't find your pedals and all the clumsy things we used to do when we were learning how to remount a bike during cyclocross. And this is a good point to illustrate what I'm talking about because it's a highly neurologically demanding series of events to get off a bike and get on a bike after a barrier while you're at threshold or close while you're in that highly sympathetic state that's very uh upregulated you've got a lot of stimulus happening to your nervous system your nervous system feels as though it's under threat why probably primarily because you're at close to maximum oxygen processing capacity and what is the quickest way to die cut off your air supply what's the quickest way to kill someone aside from shoot them not to be graphic or morbid but want to strangle someone you can kill them pretty quickly like humans are really not very good at living without oxygen or without co2 off-gassing and o2 inputting so when you get close to when you when you're forced to process a lot of o2 and it's happening so quickly your nervous system senses that any disruption to that is a threat, an imminent threat to survival because your O2 demand is so high. See what I'm saying? So your body is threatened during bike races. Your nervous system feels threatened. And that's what sends off this cascade of positive hormones and chemicals and neurotransmitters after the race is finished because you survived. So it was in a sense, a sort of near death experience not to trivialize anyone who's actually died, but, and come back to life. But that's really the, the boundary we're flaunting with to some degree. This is one of the reasons why sports are so much fun, why they're so rewarding. So as we upregulate this sympathetic drive, I would submit that it is highly likely that more of our normal autonomic processes such as thirst become downregulated. And as you become more proficient in a sport, you have more room to recognize those things and more also cognitive capacity to pay attention to them. Like, Ooh, I've been riding hard for an hour. It's time for me to eat some food or drink a little more fluids. I haven't been drinking enough. The less experienced athlete will perceive the same level of exertion as more threatening because their nervous system is less familiar with the activity. Their nervous system is less habitualized, habituated to that type of load. This is also why as I, when I was coaching for USA cycling years ago, I would see athletes racing in a points race. And for athletes who are used to doing a criterion where there's less external stimulus to pay attention to, i.e. there's a start, there's a bell at one to go, and then there's a finish. That's it. Regardless of how long your criterium is, whether it's 60 minutes or 45 minutes or 30 minutes or 75 minutes, it's the same basic format. But in a points race, things get really complicated because you have sprints every 10 laps or 2K, depending on the course and whatever. So you have to pay attention to the laps all the time because you're anticipating when the bell's going to ring because usually the sprint begins at the bell, sometimes before the bell, sometimes after, it depends on the pattern of the race and how hard everyone's been going. But when you know, when you can anticipate the bell, you've got a big advantage. So you start to learn and register the number of laps. You start to anticipate the pattern of the race based on where you are in that sequence. And that's a potent tactical advantage for athletes who can process information at that level. But when you can't, when you're a beginner and you're basically just going hard and trying not to forget to coast, right? Because if you coast on a track bike, usually you go ass over tea kettle straight over the bars. So you're trying to remember all these details and trying to remember you don't have brakes and not run into people. And by the time you get to things like lap cards and bells, you don't know what the heck's going on. So I've seen athletes actually, one time I remember a rider finished the race. That is the race finished. The final sprint came, the bell rang at one to go. The riders completed the final lap. Everyone sprinted. The gun went off, which is normal at the end of a race. And this rider didn't register any of those noises or inputs and kept racing. They just kept going in the pole lane 
until we told them the race was over. Had no idea. So this is an indication that that athlete was at a sufficient level of stress and their to-do list was sufficiently long in their focus and concentration that they were incapable of processing too many external stimuli and thus were a bit overloaded and missed the finish of the race. Okay. This is why I think that when someone competes in an event that is really maximal, we can't depend solely on the mechanism of thirst to cue us when to drink. We cannot depend solely on the mechanism of hunger to tell us when to eat. And this brings me to kind of my second point, which is my own end of one experience. And that is simply that I know there have been rides where my performance has been impacted by me not drinking enough. I'm just sure of it. And I don't have any science to support this. I didn't, you know, take any fluid metrics. Got none of that. None of that for you other than after 35 years of bike racing, I'm certain of it. So for me, how I advise my riders is to think about eating and drinking as kind of like landing a small aircraft. Too much speed, you're going to have problems when you hit the runway, right? Too much altitude or not enough altitude, you're going to have problems when you hit the runway. And hitting the runway can be seen as the start of the race, but also it's not a perfect analogy. The point is that we're constantly feathering the amount of water and food calories we take based on our sensations. That's the most important thing to craft. That's the most important intuition to craft. Now you can use different metrics to try to teach you where you are on that scale and what the intuition is. That's useful. And some metrics you might use might be something somewhat formulaic, but this is the perfect point for me to illustrate or expand on one of the points that Professor Tucker made, <coughs> excuse me, I guess it's quite common in the running world. I think it's less common in the cycling world to weigh an athlete after they're complete, after they have completed their workout. And simply, you can be a bit scientific about it, but you can just do the math. So if an athlete weighs a given amount when they go out the door, then they come home and they towel off to make sure they're not wet and they weigh themselves again, the assumption is that that weight change is their fluid loss. And this is uh, poor science. This is the equivalent of looking at mass as good or bad without recognizing that a change in mass can be comprised of several different components. It can be comprised of gaining or losing water weight, can also be more long-term comprised of gaining or losing lean muscle mass or adipose tissue, that is muscle or fat, right? So obviously if someone gains weight, if they gain a kilogram, they might initially think this is bad. Oh no, I'm I'm going to go slow on climbs, but that's a second grade way to look at what's a high school level problem. We want to be more discerning and look at our metrics more carefully. If you gained a kilogram or if you gained two kilograms of lean body mass, especially the leg muscle, and it was balanced muscle, that is to say, without disrupted length tension relationships and you lost a kilo of fat, that would be a net gain of one kilo. And you will absolutely be faster if that's the case, even if you're a climber. So it's the same problem when we weigh an athlete after their workout and we assume that all the weight lost is fluid loss. That is not the case. As Professor Tucker points out, some of the weight lost is fuel that was burned. You know, carbohydrates aren't air. They don't weigh nothing. They weigh something. And also I'll note that carbohydrate, in order to be stored in the muscle for every gram of carb, there's four grams of water. So we're back to water again. In order to refuel your glycogen tank, you have to consume water. So this is also, I think, 
an expansion of the discussion, Ross, his position is that we should drink to thirst. And I think that can be applied in some cases, some of the caveats I've already covered. But I also will say that if you come back from a four hour bike ride and you drink to thirst and you feel like you performed well, you should know that you're probably in the hole in terms of optimal levels of hydration. So, okay, we accept the science right now that your performance probably didn't actually degrade on that ride because of your whatever percent dehydration you incurred during this ride depends on the temperature and how much clothing you were wearing and how hard you were going and the conditions of the atmosphere and probably some other factors. But let's assume that you're in the hole in terms of hydration. Well, if you don't rehydrate after that ride and you consume a bunch of carbohydrates, well, your body might be struggling to store those carbs because as I just pointed out, water is required to store carbohydrate in the muscle and in the liver. That's how it's stored mechanically, physically. So we have to return to baseline. So the next point of expansion that I'm really highlighting is that a chronically dehydrated athlete is one who will underperform. And Ross does talk about this in the pod. He mentions there's one study that did demonstrate this, that when athletes were neglected or um, prevented from drinking water as per the study for a few days, their performance went down. And that's not surprising and pretty obvious. I'm convinced that there are athletes in my universe who are chronically dehydrated and I'm convinced that it does impact their performance. I mean, Dr. Alan Lim has done some studies on this. He did some work with the Garmin team years ago and determined that most of the riders were chronically dehydrated during their camp at altitude. Now, some of that can be explained in the idea that a lot of these athletes came from Europe or the East Coast or even sea level in general. And all of those climates, unless we're talking about Borrego Springs, California, all those climates are more humid than Colorado. So there's going to be an adaptation to drinking more when you're here. You know, when you're at altitude in the environmental uh, moisture levels in the air are super low, right? We're talking about humidity levels that are commonly in the teens here, or the low twenties. Basically, every time you open your mouth, you're losing water vapor out of your lungs. It's like leaving your refrigerator open and trying to air condition your entire house. It's just a really horrible way for for us to cool our living room. And so, when I talk on this podcast right now, there's moisture escaping from my lungs out into the air and it's trying to equalize the environment of the moisture content in the atmosphere in this room. And so I'm constantly losing moisture, right? And this is why when we ride at altitude and we breathe harder while we're riding our bikes, we lose a lot of moisture. It's not just the sweat on your skin. It's the moisture coming out of your lungs. That's a big, has a big impact on your hydration levels. So The point I'm making here is that chronic dehydration will impact your performance. There's quite a bit of talk about this in running right now that after about an hour and a half of running, your joints will become dehydrated. Connective tissue becoming dehydrated can have, it's got less, just as you would imagine, it's like a dry sponge instead of a wet sponge. It'll have less capacity to absorb force and thus be a little... What's the word I'm looking for? A little stickier, a little crunchier. That's not what we want. We want fluid tissue that moves. Also, when you become dehydrated, if your blood becomes thick, that's because when you're dehydrated, your plasma volume drops. So the the blood becomes thicker. Well, how does endurance exercise work? The blood travels through the venous system to the muscles, and it then goes into capillaries. And capillaries are very, very fine. They're very tiny. They're microscopic at the end. And that's where the exchange of O2 and CO2 happens in the muscle. If I'm getting some of this wrong, I'm sure Russ will let me know. But when this happens, if the blood is thick, 
it, this there's a mechanical stress there. The the thinner and lighter your blood is, the more effectively it can travel through very small tubes. Think about it. You can't push maple syrup through a really thin straw, but you can dribble it down a giant drain hole to make a weird analogy and it will go somewhere. But if we try to put it through a very fine system of capillaries, you can see how it's just going to get clogged up. So mechanical stress, we tend to think of things metabolically as limiters in cycling or in performance of athletes, but there is an element of mechanical stress to things. Literally pushing thick fluid through small holes won't be as effective. And hydration levels directly affect this. This is why there are times where after three hours of riding, you can drink one bottle and basically just slam it and come back to life. I've had this experience many times. So these are the N of ones that tell me that we really have to listen to our bodies. And, and I'll add that I wasn't necessarily thirsty at that moment. It was just something I figured out through years of hard fought experience and ass kickings and bike races. That is to say, I got my ass kicked. The same thing happens with food on the bike. You know, a lot of times you don't register hunger. Hunger might be one of the last sensations you have, but what we tend to notice is an increase in perceived exertion and either a simultaneous decrease in power or the power stays the same, but suddenly it feels a lot harder. That in itself can be an indicator that you're starting to run low on fuel and you need more carbs, more sugars. Another point of expansion that I want to cover here is that just because a world level athlete can perform amazing feats without hydration to modern commercial recommendations, that is to say, you know, 500 mils or 600 mils of water every hour or something like that doesn't mean that it's optimal, right? And Professor Tucker makes this point a couple of times. He says, look, there are multiple examples of people who have set, you know, world record marathon times, or maybe he doesn't say world record. I think he, he means competitive marathoners who have won major marathons and they've crossed the line and been according to by body weight, significantly dehydrated by modern standards. They have been, they've had significant body weight loss. And so he says, you know, if it was as simple as everyone just hydrating and performing their best based on drinking 600 mils of water every hour, then they would be running an hour 35 marathon, you know, based on these numbers. And this is ludicrous. And I agree with him on that point. But just because someone wins a marathon and crosses a line dehydrated doesn't mean that we should take it for granted that that's optimal or that that's ideal. I mean, one, we have to accept the fact that just because things are done one way doesn't, and that's what won the race, doesn't make it the right thing to do. I guess that's kind of what I'm saying. A bit inelegant. But Remember that long-term health and short-term performance are not always equal. That is to say, choices we make that increase our performance in the short-term do not always align with long-term health choices. However, the longer we practice sport, and the wiser we become, the more I would argue or submit that those start to align or ought to align. Now, if you're trying to win a race that's going to win you a million dollars and it's 12 months from now, maybe you're justified in sacrificing some of your long-term health, some in exchange for that short-term goal. You know, if you're talking about setting up the financial health or wellness of your family and your children then that's not necessarily the worst choice in the world. Depends a little bit on what kind of health compromise we're talking about. But that said, over a long enough period of time, most of the time these ideas ought to converge in my opinion. Again, not to tell people how to run their lives, but if you're an amateur cyclist or a runner, 
What business do you have compromising your long-term health to win bike races? Like, let's have some perspective here, please. I'm self-proclaimed as one of the world's biggest bike dorks. And so if I can see the light in this tunnel, I think you can too, hopefully. Okay, last expansion point. This is something I learned over many years of my career. And when we look at why people do what they do, what the decisions are that they make and the implications of those decisions, we can start to see an overriding theme or a method to their decision-making process. And I think for me, it was really valuable to start to examine this once I realized the pattern and the trend and apply it to future decisions about my own performance or my training, for example. And when I did this, I had some pretty good breakthroughs. I'll start off with an example and then I'll explain the principles. Many years ago, I was a coach for the CU cycling team here in Boulder and I heard by extension through one of my athletes that another one of the athletes on the team put himself in pretty serious harm because he decided he was going to start drinking an insane amount of water. It was something like six gallons a day. And this will cause hyponatremia, even if the water had electrolytes in it for the reasons I've already highlighted and that are outlined clearly on the pod. So if you want to unpack that, I'd invite you to go listen to it. But in this case, the athlete was drinking gallons of drinking water. And I think he thought that he was going to purify his body or cleanse himself or optimize performance somehow. I'm not sure. But this was clearly a problematic approach. And he became pretty sick pretty quickly. And fortunately, he didn't die. Um, but I think he learned a good lesson there. And okay, what are the mechanisms of this decision? This gets back to my, my philosophy and my concept. <clears throat> I've made the mistake many times in my career of making a choice about training or diet or hydration from what I'll say was a perspective that if I didn't make this decision or if I didn't make the right decision, my performance was going to be suboptimal or subpar or not reach the level that it could. I was going to somehow be underperforming. On the other hand, there were points in my career where I was faced with a training decision. Uh, just to give you a brief example, <clears throat> finishing a four-day block of training or five-day block of training, and you get to the final day and you wake up and you're really tired because you've been training for four days in a row. So then there becomes the question, is it optimal for me to push through this level of fatigue, maybe ride an hour, get nice and warmed up, and then go do the work? And will this magic fifth day be the day that gives me enough stimulus to really give me a good effect and drive fitness? Or conversely, am I so smashed that if I do this fifth day, it's just going to put me in the hole, push me off the cliff and kind of undo the entire block of training because I tried to force the final ride? And this is a, an ongoing question for many athletes, right? This is the essence of what endurance training is. Do you push more or do you rest? And I can tell you that when I framed the decision around this training block question from an empowered place that was driven by my dream goal or objective and felt as though I was stepping into a place of positive choice, the answer I arrived to was always the right answer. But when I made the decision from a fear-based perspective, it always caused me problems. It always led to challenge. So if I got to that fifth day of the block and I decided <clears throat> I have to do this day or I'm not going to be good enough and that decision was arrived really from an external self looking at my own 
training self. This is what's unique about humans. We can observe ourselves inside our minds. Here's your philosophical question for the podcast. Who is doing the observing? So we can observe ourselves in our minds. And when we do this, we see the motivations of our decisions. And when I looked at myself, what I saw was a less than athlete, an athlete who did not have the proper preparation at that point in my season. I hadn't trained well enough. I hadn't been taking care of the details enough. And so I felt insecure about my preparation for this race. And out of that insecurity became this belief that I needed to add a fifth day, even though I knew that I was completely fucked. And really, I just had to accept the fact that I was going to go to this race and not be as good as I wanted. And it was what it was. But instead, I tried to force it. And the result was I sucked. <clears throat> Another example, I raced the 2004 Tour of Georgia. And that was a really hard race for me. I was squarely in over my head at an event like that. Big Pelotons, a lot of high-speed riding, a lot of big climbs. But it was a good week of training for me. That was the year I went to the Olympic Games in Athens. And having one week-long stage race about once a month is a critical part of your preparation all season long to be prepared for an event like the Olympics. So we get to Georgia, and I'm there, and I'm racing with the TIA Kreft team. And Jonathan Vodders is there. And the first night of the, of the race, he gives us this speech. He's like, look, I want everybody to just eat a little more than normal. Just eat a couple bites more than normal. He, I'm paraphrasing, but this is basically what he said. Have a little bit of extra pasta or rice with dinner because this is going to be a really long, hard week for all of us. And this was a U23 team, except for me. I was the old guy, but everyone else was really young. So this race was well over their heads in most cases too. And so this was sound advice because we, you know, when you're in over your head, eating a little bit of extra just to ensure that you've got enough fuel in the tank isn't the worst advice in the world. But I took that advice and ran with it and went a little bit overboard. I went to an extreme. I disobeyed natural law and I basically ate two plates of food for every one that I should have. And by the time I got to the third stage, I was just overloaded with calories. Couldn't go hard. My whole body shut down. My poop turned gray. True story. Which is a sign that your gallbladder is just like tapping out, dude. Can't handle this. So I ended up DNFing. Just couldn't ride my bike. And then I had no appetite for like two days afterwards. So I just way, I ate myself out of the race. I way over ate. And this was me, and this was nothing to do with JV's advice. It was sound advice, but it was my interpretation of that advice. I took it too far and I spun it a little bit into a fear-based decision. It was like, Ooh, if I don't eat enough, I'm going to bonk and get dropped. I'm going to be underfueled. I have to eat more. I have to eat more. And it was an excessive fear-based mentality. And that was my undoing. It wasn't the advice fundamentally. And this is the problem when someone goes into a marathon or a bike race and they're thinking, I have to drink 650 mils of water or fluid sports drink an hour. Otherwise, my performance will be degraded by 0.5% and I will get dropped because I'm not good enough. That's when the problem starts. So there's two beliefs that are dissociating them from what would be a better success formula. One is the lack of trust in the body to have some thirst that will tell them when to drink. But also more than that, just belief in themselves and understanding that yes, while competition is in a form, in a sense, it's a microscope and everyone watches you and we all see results in social media and we all want to perform and win or do well and be loved, that that paradigm of being loved when you're a good athlete is one of the most negative 
reinforcements of social media. And it's also the ultimate form of conditional love. It's when your parents said, you got an A, I love you so much. The implication being that if you got a C, I would love you half as much or not at all. That's an extension of that same mindset. And the reality is that no human is weighed or measured by the results of their bike racing. We're all far more than that. As Jonathan taught me years ago, none of us are as bad as our bad day on the bike and none of us are as good as our best single day on the bike. We're all just humans somewhere in between those two polarities. So my last expansion point really comes down to if you make decisions about training or racing or the amount of water to drink or the food to drink off of a fear-based mentality or paradigm or from a fear perspective of fear or less than, there's a high probability that decision won't serve you. However, if you can step back and let go of fear and make the decision in the context of your dream goal or objective and how to step forward with power towards that objective, as long as you're moving towards it, then that decision will serve that goal and serve you at that moment. And maybe there might be some internal discussion about how you really want to do better and you really desperately want to ride that sub 27 minute time or drop that woman on that climb that has been dropping you all year or, or win the such and such category in the such and such gravel race. Those aren't bad goals, but we also have to recognize that it's all part of the journey. And maybe at that moment, you might want, 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 but it may not be where things are realistically at that time. That doesn't mean you can't make progress towards your larger goal of simply becoming faster or more proficient at the sport. That's what I got. I hope you enjoyed my expansion of Professor Ross Tucker's podcast, The Simple Truth About Exercise and Hydration. That's on the Real Science of Sport podcast. I'll do the old Instagram tagging bit with these guys when I publish this, and then we'll see if they care about my ramblings. Maybe they'll respond. I don't know. Maybe Russell disagree with me. Maybe he wants to wrestle me after this. I don't think so though. I think probably we'll agree on most points would be my suspicion. Maybe not. Did you like this episode? Do you want more of this? I think this could be a worthwhile way for me to structure my ramblings because I frequently do listen to other people's pods and I frequently do have thoughts on their content. So assuming I don't get sued or yelled at, I will keep doing this um, contingent upon some positive feedback. So let me know. Hit me on the email or the gram or the Twitter bombs and tell me what you thought of this. Hopefully my thoughts were somewhat cohesive and my description of their podcast was enough to get the idea across, but not so much that you got lost or didn't care. Go listen to their pod if you want to hear it. It's worth it. It's a good one. Thanks, everyone. Happy New Year. Gratitude. Epilogue. I want to share a few brief thoughts about the inception of Cycling in Alignment. The purpose of this podcast is for me to get three and a half decades of hard-fought lessons out of my skull. Some of them through my own research and reading. Some of them I've been taught through mentors and colleagues, other riders, other racers. A lot of it, a massive amount of it was simply trial and error through my own stubborn methods. And that has amassed a certain amount of experience and knowledge, understanding. And while I think I'm reasonably smart and I know quite a bit of stuff, I want to make it clear that 
the opinions that I share on this podcast are belief systems built on what I've experienced to this point. And that some of those opinions are pretty strong, but they are also loosely held. That is to say that if I learn more about a topic and have a greater level of clarity or understanding, then my old belief systems will be abandoned and I will now operate under that newfound knowledge. So I'm not here to tell people all the things that I know. I'm here to explain what I've learned to this point. And there's a big difference. Also, that is the intent when I discuss things on the pod with guests is to learn from them and have a discourse. Because if we can't have a discourse as adults, then we've lost one of the basic tenets of modern society. Even if we disagree, we ought to be able to, in most cases, shake hands and walk away. Because after all, this is sport we're talking about. And while sport is training for life, it's nothing to get too upset over. The purpose of the podcast is to help me help other people and specifically to help them actualize their highest potential by illuminating a path that enables alignment with their truth, their intent, and their coherence. That's really the end goal. So I'm grateful for your listening. My intent is also not to be clear to gain an audience or become popular or gain social status in any way. I don't care about that stuff. That said, if you feel an episode that you have heard will help someone you know, please share it with them. That helps us reach the end goal, which is to help more people. Thank you for listening. I'm grateful for your time and attention. Blessings. Blessings.